0: Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. For those of you guys that are just jumping in with us, we just started the book of Acts, which uh, seemed like a great idea for planting a church. Uh, just kind of go back to the beginning and see, see how things started. So we are just a few weeks into that, uh, and we uh, left off last week in chapter 2, verse 42. Those of you that are familiar with this passage, um, you, you kind of know what we're going to look at here. So 242, I'll just read it, and then we'll get to work. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So I can't think of a a lot of times, at least in our Western culture, where there's been more confusion about what in the world church is. This has become abundantly clear to me as I've um, sort of gone into this endeavor of planting a church, and um, people everywhere I go, they ask me what 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 am I doing, and why did I move here, and and I say, oh, I'm planting a church, and they go why would you do that? <laughs> what is the purpose of that? Um, you know, there just seems to be so much confusion, not only within non-Christian culture, but even within Christian culture about the church and what it's for and, and what its function is. I mean, I, I feel sort of disoriented sometimes, even as a pastor, knowing what my place is as a, as a pastor in culture. Church used to sort of be a, a, a hub that connected people to things. It was where people did weddings it's where people did funerals. It's where people went when they were hurting. They needed counsel. They needed help. And, and now the church has sort of become a place for Christians, um, which is you know, what, it, what it primarily should be. But, but the, the culture at large doesn't really know what to do with us. <laughs> They're not really sure what to think of churches. So this has left churches in a, in a particularly awkward place where um, they feel like they have to sort of change the identity of what a church is. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, with thinking, you know, maybe we should rethink some of the way that we do things, but, but the reality is there is a pattern to what a church is and what a church's function is and what a church, you know, is supposed to do. The thing is, guys, we're, we're living in something called post-Christendom. Are you familiar with that term, post-Christendom? It's, it's, it's basically this idea that our culture in America at one point was pretty much fully saturated in Christianity. So, And I don't mean that everyone was a Christian. That would be completely false. But I mean that the the cultural norm in Western society, um, particularly in our country, was to be a Christian. So it it was more normal to be a Christian maybe than it was to not be. And we're now in this sort of recession from Christendom into post-Christendom, meaning that now it's actually becoming more normal to say, no, I'm not a Christian um, it's actually becoming more praised to sort of have issue with the church than maybe it is to be someone you know, who's, who's for um, the church. We're, we're kind of tailing Europe a little bit in this. If you want to know what it's going to look like on our landscape 10 to 20 years, look at, look at Europe. Look at the UK. They've, they've moved quickly um, away from sort of a Christ-centered or even a, just a church-centric culture um, into more of a secular mindset. And we're kind of going that direction. So what are we to do as, as Christians? I'll tell you what a lot of churches do. A lot of churches say, well, we need to just be cool again. <laughs> like, Let's make church cool. And then maybe, maybe non-Christians will be excited to come back, and they'll just come back through the doors. So, so you know, um, you know let's, let's have better coffee. Let's have better music. Let's have better lights. Let's have better speaking. And there's nothing wrong with those things. Those things are good. I'm not demonizing those things. Those things are amoral. They're not nothing wrong with them. But are those things what the world needs? Is, is just making a, a, this maybe is a crass term, but just making a sexier version of church, is that really the best way? Is that really the best way to get the world to come back and, and, and to see us as something um, that can actually speak into their lives? And I would suggest to you that, that the answer is no to that. The reality is that, that the church, and listen to this, the church is not something to be thought of, it's something to be discovered. Okay? The church, it's not like art, it's like archaeology. Art is something that is sort of subjective in the eye of the beholder. So you, you, you make something, um, you know, and you sort of step back and you go, I made this, and it's whatever in my head. You know, I had the idea in my head. That's art. Archaeology says this was a thing, and we dug it up. <laughs> this was something, and we're just trying to figure out what was actually there. There was a building here, and we're, we're getting rid of the dust and, and, and sweeping it off so we can figure out what it is. The church isn't something for us to define. It's not something for us to get clever with. It's not something for us to say, let's make church um, different. Okay? The church is a thing. In fact, it's people, as I said earlier. The church is a reality. And as Christians, our job is not to go to God's Word and say, let's import our idea of what church should be. Our job is to go to the God's Word and say, God, what have you said church is? And how do we conform to that reality? And again, the church is, It's what? I said it a few times already. People. Okay, so we, we, have, to, we have to say, God, what is it that you're trying to, 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 to do and how do we tune into it? Let me give you an example. So this is, this is my, my iPad, okay? Uh, everyone makes fun of me because it's giant. Um, it's also a flat-screen TV if you want to put it on the wall. Um, so so this thing's great. Like, I, I got it because I, I preach from it, and I, need, and I, and I think I'm getting old because, you know, my, uh, you guys can laugh, but my eyes, are, they can't see things as good anymore. But, so if I took this thing back in time, let's say 400 years back, and I, and, I, and I gave it to somebody, I didn't tell them what it was, I didn't turn it on, I just said, here it is. And then I left. Okay, so 400, we're talking like pre-technology, pre-computer, pre-electricity, probably pre-all this stuff. They would look at this thing, and they would think, what the heck is this thing for? In fact, they would probably be annoyed by it because though it may look cool, uh, it would serve absolutely no purpose and value to them. Why? Because they don't understand what it does. They haven't been given an instruction manual. They don't understand how to turn it on. They don't understand what the features of it, the functions of it, the, 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 the parts of it that would be helpful to them in society. So what they probably would end up doing, honestly, is using it for something like a dustpan. Right? I mean, what would you do with this thing if you didn't know what it was? <laughs> okay? So you'd use it as a dustpan and you'd, you'd set it on the floor and you'd try sweeping it, in and you'd get really irritated with it. Because you'd try to sweep dirt in this thing, and there's this big lip here. And you'd think, who engineered this thing? It doesn't even have a smooth transition from the ground on. I mean, I can't sweep anything on it. What a terrible dustpan. You'd probably throw it somewhere in a closet and you'd leave it alone and it would be absolutely useless to you. I'd suggest to you that's exactly what's happening with the church. Okay? It's something beautiful. It's something that's very complex, but it's simple. It's something that at its heart um, can shape and change and transform culture in miraculous ways. Um, But because we've stopped asking God what it is, and we've started saying what it it is for ourselves, it's become useless. And the culture doesn't know what to do with us. What's the point of the church? Is that just where I, I go to get judged? I mean, what do I do with church? What's the, what's the purpose of that? So our job, and what our text really answers this morning, is, is what in the world is this thing for? And how is it supposed to work? And how is it supposed to operate? What are we actually supposed to do with it? The good news about church, the good news about the gospel, is that it has a built-in, uh, a, a built-in... Where's, where's the word? Hold on. Let me look for it. It has a built-in reset. A system reset. If anyone's a, a computer person and you know what a system reset is, okay, you, you, know, you get too many things going, um, you're, you're too many windows open, maybe you got a little bit of a virus on your computer, so what do you do? You do a system reset, it puts everything back to the factory reset, and you start over. The church actually has a built-in system reset. Look at church history. What happens is, Christianity comes into a community, and it's powerful, and, it's, and it changes the world. It changes that community for the good. And then it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it gets to the point where, where it starts to become less about the gospel, less about the authenticity of the church, and it becomes more about the power of the church, and the dogma of the church, and the control of the church. And so the, the, the best example of this is the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? Uh, it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it got to the point where it was in bed with power. And as Tim Keller says, as soon as the church gets in bed with power, it needs a system reset. Because no longer is it about the authenticity of gospel-shaping people, this good news of who Jesus is and what he does, determining what we do and think. Now it's about power and control. And the church becomes this this sort of institutional organization, organization that becomes unhealthy. Now this happens on a micro level every day. But the good news about the church is it has a system reset. The system reset is that people who go to God's word, they rediscover the orthodoxy of what Christianity was always meant to be. And that has nothing to do with large flashiness and programming and all of those things. Not that those things in and of themselves are evil, but what it has to do with is people that are living in community with each other as Christ is their king. That's the simplicity, the authenticity of what church is. This is one of the reasons we have a conviction about church planting, not just us, but in all of the world, because church planting system resets. It gets people thinking, hey, why do we do things that way? Why do we have pews? Nothing wrong with pews. Pews are great. You know, why, let's try tables. I don't know. Maybe that'll get us looking at each other. Maybe that'll get us to where we're not just staring at the stage the whole time and then thinking about how we can make our exit to go have lunch as quickly as possible. Maybe if we have some tables, we'll actually start interacting and being the body of Christ and actually making some friends and having community. I mean, it, it, it's, it's just this constant need to get back to what God had originally had in mind. It's interesting, my daughter, um, she came home from school. She just started kindergarten the other day. She came home from, from school, and she, she told um, my wife, who is a phenomenal teacher um, of my kids. She teaches them all kinds of things. And she, she um, proudly, with her head up high, she told my wife about how, she, uh, how her teacher was so impressed because she knew where Australia was. <laughs> and I looked over, and I said, Mila, how did you know where Australia was? And I already knew how she knew where Australia was because her mom told her where Australia was. And she, with her head held high, she said, I just know. I was like, wow. Aren't you smart? I was like, I don't think you just know. I think mommy told you. No, no, no. I just know. This is actually what our culture is doing right now with our ethics. Isn't it interesting, you know, that that people... Secular, liberal-minded people yet still have this moral center to some degree that, that, that this ethical drive to, to sort of be against inequality, to be, to be against um, you know, putting down certain classes or certain kinds of people. Where do you think they got that? Did it come from Rome? <laughs> no. It came from the church. Do, do, people don't understand how much of our ethical center you know, although, although our ethics are getting, are getting sort of blurry as to what's right anymore because we're moving away from, from, from the Bible, but people don't realize how much of their moral center as a Western thinker comes from Christianity. Who do you think it was that, that challenged the idea that people should be slaves? Now, I know everybody says, well, wasn't it, wasn't it Christians in, in, in America that were, uh, for, that were for slavery? Uh, Christians that were not reading their Bibles. And then once they started reading their Bibles, guess what happened? They champion freedom okay the the, the idea is that the, the reality is that the church imported gospel community thinking into a dark place where people were taken advantage of, and those ethics have carried through even in, in, in the West I mean this is the reality, so my point just simply being is that when the church is what the church is supposed to be doing what the church is supposed to be doing, we can shape culture in amazing ways, but the reality of that is it's authenticity it 's not just what we do it's authenticity so Let's get into our text. The question I want to ask this morning is, and the question I'm setting up here, is what is the church supposed to look like? If we, if we want a church like the early church that shaped and blew into the Roman, uh, Greco-Roman world, do you guys understand that by 300, by, by around 300 AD, um, Roman culture shifted towards Christianity? Ro- the Romans who persecuted Christianity became Christians. That was how effective the gospel was in the first 300 years of history, The gospel and the church was so effective that the Roman Empire literally became Christian-centered. And then it grew and got powerful and needed a system reset, right? What is that power? I mean, what what kind of church is so powerful that it can do that? And this is the glimpse that we get. This is the screenshot that we get from today. Um... In our text, So I want to back up a little bit. And, and before we get into verse 42, which I read, I want to back up to verse 41 and get you into the narrative here. Because some of you guys weren't here last week uh, when Matt taught and talked to us about uh, the first half of chapter 2. Look at verse 41. Here's what's been going on. So those who received his word, who? Peter. Peter just preached his sermon. Were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So here's what's been happening. So Acts chapter 1... Okay? Acts chapter 1, we meet uh, Jesus in his resurrected body. He ascends, goes to the Father, he tells these guys to wait for a week. They wait for a week uh, for the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit comes at this feast called Pentecost, which, strangely enough, Pentecost is the Feast of Harvest. And at the Feast of Harvest, The Holy Spirit comes, powerfully, comes upon these 120 um, sort of core team of this first church plant in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes upon these guys. They start speaking um, in real languages, in every tribe and tongue. And all of these people that were in town for the Feast of Pentecost, all of these um, people that were Jews that were scattered throughout uh, the dispersion, scattered throughout all of the ancient world were in Jerusalem for this. All of a sudden, they all hear the gospel. And there's a radical revival. 3,000 souls... Come to saving faith in Christ in one sermon. Right? I mean, this is, this is incredible. Man, God, I want to see that in <laughs> my lifetime, right? I want to see that happen. 3,000 souls get saved, okay, in, in one setting. Now, here's the thing, though. Here's where our text comes in. Now, that's amazing, and we read that, and we go, wow, 3,000 saved, what a thing. I'd love to be part of that. I'd love to go to some event where 3,000 people get saved. Me, too. I think that'd be great. But you know what's even more interesting to me? What happened the next day? I mean, you got 3,000 baby Christians. 3,000 baby Christians that don't have a clue what New Covenant theology, New Covenant living, New Covenant church looks like. These guys are Jews, so they have sort of this legalistic um, idea of Judaism that they're coming out of, they're being baptized out of. What in the world would that look like? Can you imagine that? These 120 that were there before, they had their work cut out for them. These guys don't have assimilation strategy, as we call it in church world. These guys don't have discipleship programming. They don't have small group ministry. I mean, good grief, like 3,000 new converts. How do you even begin to think about discipling 3,000 converts? What this is, is this is the coming down the hill. Our text is the coming down the hill from the mountaintop experience. You guys ever had the mountaintop experience? It's very real. It's very real. I used to work at a camp that would hold up to 1,000, like 600 to 1,000 kids. And we would have these massive high school camps, man. Like 600, 700 kids would come up. And just tons of them would have this, this radical and real experience with God. And many of them would get saved. And so many of them were just confessing sin and just, just, just getting rid of just, just all this junk in their life and ready to follow Christ. And then at the end of the camp, it was the, most, it was the most sad day of the week for me. Because you know what I had to do? I had to send them down the hill. And I had to stay up there. And everything in me, I this sort of pastoral compulsion in me, everything in me wanted to go down the hill with them and do this thing called Christianity with them and figure out how to work out their salvation and figure out how to, how to grow into what God had just given them in totality. I, mean, I just wanted that so bad. And so I, I, was, I was really kind of slotted to stay up there for two years, but I went home early. I just couldn't handle it anymore. I went home to my little hometown in Wairika because I wanted to help my youth pastor. I wanted to start working through the process of sanctification, which is the word for growing as a Christian, becoming more like Christ. This is what Acts 2.42-47, our text, this is, this is what this is. It's this growth of Christians. Okay, they've been saved. They've been reborn. They've been baptized. Now what? Now what? Now what do we do? What happens next? These guys had their work cut out for them. Notice that they, they got baptized. Now, that, that, that seems obvious to us because we're sort of evangelical Christians, or maybe we're, we're, maybe some of us aren't, but, but maybe you're familiar with evangelical Christians, and what evangelical Christians do is they get baptized. But that would not be really normal to these guys. The apostles say, okay, you're saved, now let's go down to the Pool of Siloam or whatever, 3,000 of you, and let's dunk you. That would actually be, listen to me, that would be humiliating for these Jews. Because baptism at that time, before it became commonplace for Christians, baptism was a sign that you were a Gentile becoming a Jew. It was a proselyte baptism. It was a symbol that you had sort of converted to Judaism. So for these Jews, before their peers, in Jerusalem, the, the, the sort of the center for worship for the Jewish religion, to go in front of all of these people in public and to be dunked, everyone would think they were converting Gentiles would be absolutely humiliating. So this whole idea, like, you know, if you ever do an altar call or you have someone to get saved, just don't embarrass them, don't make them stand up, don't... It's like, are you kidding me? These guys literally got baptized in front of people, their peers, that would have thought, oh, these guys are just Gentiles, apparently. So, so there's a natural progression to these guys as these baby Christians. First, they, they believe... You ever, you ever know, how, how do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I'm saved? Well, what did these guys do? They proclaimed faith, okay? They believed, they repented, they believed, and then they were baptized... Okay, they were baptized, and then what was the next thing that happened? Look at the text again, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and then what? They were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to the church. Added to the church. They became part of a family. They became part of a body. They began body life. They began this community community. This Christian community, this is what salvation looked like. They proclaimed faith, they were baptized, they became part of the local church. This was the progression of what they did. And after that, they began to have new compulsions. They began to have new desires. What's so amazing to me is what these guys did, these 3,000 guys did, without anybody probably really really having to tell them to do it. Yeah, the, the apostles were there, sure. But these guys, they just knew. They knew these new desires, these new, this new shape of what their life was going to look like, they immediately, as we'll see in verse 42, they immediately began to pray. They immediately began to be generous. They immediately began to be together. They immediately wanted and had desire for the truth of God's word. There's a natural uh, sort of a, a, a nature versus nurture thing going on here. These guys are just have natural built-in desires. Why? Because they've been reborn. The word is regenerate. They've been given the newness of life. Now they have new desires. That's what's going on. Here. It's exactly what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three, didn't he? When he was prophesying about the new covenant, he said, "For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will create on their heart, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." You know, we pick on big churches. Especially people who are in small churches. That's kinda of how it works, you know. If you're in a big church you pick on small churches, if you're in a small church, you pick on big churches. If you say, oh big churches aren't they're not really healthy, they they can't make disciples. You wanna bet? Three thousand. Big church right away. Okay? How did these guys know what to do? Um, Holy Spirit. Well, how could they possibly know how to live Christian unless we had a pastor for every 50 person people that were walking them through some kind of strategy and program and letting them know and getting an app on their phone and blah, blah, blah and making sure that they have, you know, a devotional Bible and get a good study Bible and, and I mean, what, if, what what if they just keep in and what happens if they don't grow and learn how to... None of that happened. These guys had the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things. Apps, study Bibles, devotionals, discipleship, it's all important. The Holy Spirit is the one that does the work. The Holy Spirit is the one that does the work. If I just sum up what the Jerusalem church was in 33 AD, they were a spirit-filled church. Spirit-filled church. Now, I don't mean by that like that the Spirit is some kind of a tube and that he was squeezed more into that church than he is in other churches. That's how people think about the Holy Spirit. Oh, the Holy Spirit's really at that church. No, if it's a church, the Holy Spirit's there. What I mean by spirit-filled is I mean they were tuned in to what the Spirit was trying to do. Every church that really believes in Christ has the Spirit in it. Did you know that? But some churches actually say yes to the Spirit. Some churches don't. He's there. He's always there. There's a difference between God's presence and God's manifest presence. What we want to do is we want to say, Lord, we, we know your presence is here because we're believers and you live within us. But we want your manifest presence. We want to feel your presence. We want to know that you're here. We want to see you work. That's the difference. These guys had new affections. Now, before we get into our text, I know I'm doing a lot of introductory work here. But there's a word I want you to see. Look at verse 42. It says, They devoted, you might underline that, they devoted themselves, these baby Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking bread, and prayers. And I'll break those four things down in a minute. But I want you to see the word devoted. Okay, another word for that, at least in my translation, could be diet. These guys' diet were these four things. Devotion, uh, or the word devotion there, the Greek is proskartoreo. It's to persist, to be persistent, to be consistent. The things you do every day. Okay, those are the things that define you. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Like, we all think it's the couple decisions we make in our life. That's going to define us as people. But in the reality, the things that really define us as people are the millions and millions of decisions we make every day. It's how you build trust. It's how you build character. It's how you build grit. It's how you build depth. You do the same and the great right and the good things every day. You build them into your life, right? What would it be better, to be, to be a keto guy for like 60 days or to just not eat junk food for your whole life? Okay, it's, it's, the, it's the little things that you do every day. So what Luke is pointing out here is he's saying, this is the steady diet of the early church. These were the things they devoted themselves to. Not the things, not the, not the big annual events, not the big flashy things. These were the little things. I like how Eugene Peterson, I'm going to steal his illustration here, but I'm giving him credit. Um, he, he, he uses his illustration in his book, uh, Working the Angles, and I'm, I'm going to borrow it and use it in this case. So, so think of a square. Okay, when you think of a square... The square, the most obvious part of the square is what? It's the lines. You see the lines right away. You think that's the, that's the, 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 sort of the substance of the shape. But what's the most important part of the square? It's the angles. The angles of a square. The angles determine the shape. The angles determine the structure. So the lines, if you will, are sort of the things that come out of our ministry. But the, the, the angles of our life, those are the things that we do. The things that we do every day. The things that, that, that Luke lists here in verse 42 okay, apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking bread and prayer, those are the angles of the shape of the ministry of the early church in Jerusalem. They were the most important things that these guys did. And they did them every day. They did them every week. They gathered to do these things. There's nothing impressive about them. They're actually, you know, honestly, like if you went to a conference, a pastoral conference, and they said, hey, here's your, here's your tip do these four things, teach the Bible. Fellowship with each other. Take communion and pray. You go, I want my money back. Where's all my cool tips? How am I going to get my youth group more exciting? How am I going to get young families to come? Come on, give me the tips. Okay, this is the shape of the early church. These four things. It wasn't the only thing they were doing, but this was the steady diet of the early church. These are the things that they did constantly. Constantly over and over and over again. These were, as the Puritans called it, the means of grace. The things that God used, the conduits that God used to pour grace over these guys throughout their weeks, throughout their days. So, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the angles of a Spirit-filled church. These four things. Let's break them down one by one. The first thing is what? The, uh, to the apostolic teaching. It says the early church in Jerusalem was de- they were devoted to these four things. The first one was apostolic teaching. Okay? Now, some translations um, use the phrase "doctrine," and doctrine is kind of a four-letter word in uh, the Western Christianity right now. Okay, it's like, oh, don't talk about doctrine; nobody will come. Doctrine's dry. There's two lies about doctrine. And doctrine, by the way, is just teaching. It's just teaching. Doctrine is just expressing what you believe. Okay, so if you say, "I really like French toast," that is your doctrine on French toast. Amen. That's what I'm talking about. Okay? I do love some French toast. That's the doctrine. Okay? So, so if, I, if I get up here and say anything, that I think about anything, that's doctrine. You can't really get away with it. The people that, that are sort of Unitarian Universalists, and they're, and they're allergic to anyone who disagrees with anything, and they tell you that you're being bigoted and closed-minded by disagreeing with them, that's doctrine. That's their doctrine. That's their truth claim. Okay? You can't avoid doctrine. Doctrine is important. So the two lies that people believe about doctrine, the first one is it only divides us. You ever heard that? We don't talk about doctrine here. It only divides us. Uh, That's not true. In fact, doctrine is what unites us. Okay, doctrine is... You know what the Hebrew word for doctrine is? Torah. You know what Torah is? It's the first five books of the Bible. It's the law. It's God's word. It's what he said. You know what unites us as Christians? We all believe what God says. Hopefully. That's what unites us. It's not what divides us. And I really can't think of a lot of things more important than getting what God said right. Can you? I mean, it really matters. We need to get what God said. You know, Jesus said he was the word. Why did he say that? Jesus was the doctrine of God. He was the language of God. He was God himself. But he was God speaking to man in a language we could understand, which there's nothing more understandable to me than a human, because a human is a language I can understand. Jesus, in a sense, although he was God and he was man, he was also doctrine. He was God's word, the Logos. Are you with me? Okay. It's really important. We have to agree on what God said because we're saved by what? Anyone? Faith. Faith. Is that your question? I don't know. We're saved by faith. And what is faith? Faith is believing in something. It's believing that God said something. And we say, okay, I believe that. So it really matters what God says. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we give time to it. That's why these guys, in their steady diet, in one of their angles, they took time to sit under the teaching of the apostles, which was of the Old Testament as well. The Old Testament and the New Testament. These guys taught it. The second lie about doctrine is that it's only dry. It's not spiritual. How many times have you heard this? Oh man, I go to spirit-filled churches. I don't go to churches that talk about doctrine because it's too dry. Spirit doesn't work there. Okay, I have news for you. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Okay? He's the Spirit of truth. I want you to see something in the text here. These guys had the most radical religious experience that we probably have recorded in the Bible. 3,000 people get saved, like that. What do the apostles do? Instantly, they begin rooting their faith, not in that experience, but in the Word of God. Isn't that Interesting. You would think these guys would just get up and be like, guys, don't forget. Remember what happened last week? Hold on to that. Root your faith to that experience. It's not what the apostles did. They immediately got in front of these guys and began to anchor their souls to the truth of God's word rather than this experience that had happened. There's nothing wrong with experiences. Experiences are helpful sometimes in us knowing that God is working in our life, but it's not what we anchor ourselves to. Listen to what John Stott, uh, the theologian, said uh, regarding this. This truth, he said, anti-intellectualism and the fullness of the Spirit are mutually incompatible. That's a really smart way of saying <laughs> that being against the intellect or against truth and being for the Spirit—that that doesn't those two don't go together. Okay, because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Truth. Nor did those early disciples imagine that because they had received the Spirit, He was the only teacher they needed, and they could disperse with human teachers. Yes, the Holy Spirit was there. Yes, the Holy Spirit was present, but there was still teaching. There was still doctrine. There was still truth because we need our minds to be reshaped. There is a biblical mandate, a biblical mandate that is very clear in Scripture that we are to have our minds rewired. Romans 12.2 says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the what? Renewal of your mind. This is what doctrine does. Okay. From the inside out, that's Eastern religion. Christianity is from the outside in. I don't have the truth in me. I need the truth imported in me. I'm not a better person on the inside than I am on the outside. I'm usually worse. Okay. Whatever you see how here, I'm probably worse. Actually, I am worse on the inside. <laughs> okay. I don't want to go on some retreat and get, and get to know myself. If I go on some retreat and get to know myself, I'm not going to like what I see. I want to go on some retreat and see Christ, and I want him to be imported into me. This is the idea and the importance of doctrine. That's why Paul, when he writes to his protege Timothy, he makes it very clear. He says, Put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. First Timothy four, eleven through thirteen, he says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and in conduct, in love, and faith and purity until I come, and there's plenty more about that. This is why teaching sits preeminent largely at church, because we believe that God's word is authoritative in our lives, and we need our lives to be conformed to his thinking. We want to think like Jesus. This is our, our hope. This is our goal. The second thing in their, in their shape of their, their church life was fellowship. Okay, So it wasn't just teaching. It was also fellowship. I've got to speed up a little bit here. Uh, fellowship, if any of you guys have been around church a while, you probably know the Greek word for that is koinonia. Okay, Koinonia. If you want to sound really smart, don't call it church. Call it koinea place or something like that, you know. Um, it, it, it's just a Greek word that really means commonality. Now, in ancient times, there was something called koina Greek. Koine Greek, I believe is what it was. And it was the common Greek. So you had classic Greek. It's just kind of like a English in real English. <laughs> Okay, you know, there's like the King James English, that was like the original English, and then we have English that we speak, which is kind of more like a, uh, maybe more of a layman's English, okay? Um, so, so in that time, there was classic Greek, but then when Rome sort of came in and, and was amalgamated with the Gre- uh, Greek world, and the Greco-Roman world was, was sort of created, then they kind of created common Greek. The key word there is common, common Greek. It was a language that they all had in, in common. So much of the Bible was written in Koine Greek. Common Greek. It was a language everyone could understand. When I went to Uganda, there, there was lots of languages, but the common language there, the common language there is, is what? English. Which just totally surprised me. <laughs> English is sort of a binding language for them. So you, you know, you, you're, you're there and you don't know anybody and you don't know what to do and you don't know the culture and then, and then all of a sudden someone speaks English to you and you just go, oh, yay, I found commonality with you. I can breathe. That's the idea of fellowship here. This is the idea that, 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 that Luke and, and Paul and others in the New Testament are conveying when they say koinonia. It's this commonality. It's that you spend seven days or six days or whatever it is a week working in worldly places with worldly people that you should love and be telling the gospel to, but it gets exhausting, right? And then you come together with the believers and you instantly find a commonality, and that commonality is refreshing. At least it should be. And if it's not refreshing, it's probably because you've gotten spoiled, <laughs> I mean, we're talking to a guy, in fact, uh, where's Brian? Brian and I were actually out on a walk one time, and we bumped into this guy who seemed like he was rehearsing a sermon or something, and we talked to him, and it turns out he was a pastor from Jordan, right? The Middle East, Jordan. And so we're talking to him, like, man, what's, what's it like, you know, being in Jordan? And then we're talking, like, hostile, Middle Eastern, not, not, not really the easiest place to go start a church. And I was trying to figure out, because I'm a pastor, I'm like, so what's your tribe, you know? What, what's your theology? What do you, where do you come from? What's your people? What's your denomination, you know? And he's just all... Uh, you know, honestly, over there, it doesn't matter. There's like three churches and everyone hates us, so we're all friends. <laughs> I'm like, that's awesome, dude. That's koinonia right there. I mean, if, if we sort of start to take for granted this fellowship that we have, it's because we're not actually doing much. You know, it's like, it's like I like Rick Boya. He, he, he uses this illustration of fellowship being like water. If you have too much water, you start to hate water. But when you're thirsty, man, you have to have it. You have to have it. Fellowship is like that. When you're out in the world six days a week and you're around worldliness, to come to church and be around people that have that commonality, it's refreshing. That's the point. That's the idea here, okay? That's being pointed out. That's what these guys did. And they did it all the time. Look at verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions. We'll get to this. Breaking or belongings and distributing the proceeds to all um, as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. They get just together all the time. They just want to be together. <clears throat> they were together in homes. They were together in the temple. They had food. I love that. Okay? They just gathered around the table. Their houses were tiny, by the way. I'm talking like eight or ten people. Their houses were really small. The third thing they did was breaking of bread. Okay, again, in their shape, these four things, the breaking of bread. Most scholars agree this is referring to sort of an early idea of communion, doing what Jesus taught them to do. Okay, so if you look at your table, we're going to take communion today. And it's kind of silly how we do it. I kind of hate it, but it's like a little plastic cup and a little cracker. You know, I wish we could pass a loaf around, and I'll drink out of a cup, but you guys would run for the hills because we're germaphobes. Um, rightly so. Okay. Um, but this is, this is supposed to remind us of something. It's supposed to remind us of the gospel. Jesus built this into the rhythm of his church. He said, do this in remembrance of me. The breaking of the bread, which was um, sort of a, a Jewish norm, the, 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 the host or the sort of the father of the house, the patriarchal figure would break the bread, sort of signifying that the feast was begun. And Jesus did that and he said, do this in remembrance of me. And the breaking of the bread was supposed to be a reminder that Jesus' body was broken for us. And the blood, the cup was supposed to be a reminder that Jesus had poured out his blood to atone for us. And he said, do this all the time. And so they did. They built it into their rhythms. They, they studied the word. They came together in fellowship. They took communion. And for them, it wasn't a little cup. It was a meal. And they spent time together. They probably laughed and they had a good time. It would be more, much more like a, like a barbecue or a home fellowship or something along those lines. Hospitality would have been needed. They, they broke bread. Did you guys know that that it's a discipline to believe the gospel? When we think of disciplines, we know we think of fasting, we think of prayer, we think of exercise, we think those are disciplines. Believing the gospel, you are not bent for it. Everything in you is bent to be a legalist. You're programmed, hardwired to be a legalist. Just like my iPad has a a built-in set of systems, and because it's Apple, you can't change anything, because they're control freaks, right? So it's built in, it's hardwired to do a few things. Okay, just like that, you are built in, hardwired for legalism. Do good, get good. Do good, God loves me. Do bad, God hates me. That's legalism. The breaking of the bread was a reminder for these guys that constantly we get good because God's good. We're loved because Jesus is love. We get good because God gave everything for us on the cross. And we need to remember that every single day. Gospel centrality, keeping that at the center. The table keeps us focused. It also reminds us that we're a family, right? The fourth thing they do—I'm going to speed up here. The the fourth thing they do—you hear the kids start freaking out back there. I'm like, I got to preach faster. Okay, let's get through this. We got a lot of kids at this church, man. Praise God. The fourth thing they did was pray. Pray. If you ever want to get people to not come to your church, just do prayer meetings. If If anyone's like, my church is too big, just start praying, man. People will leave. But you know what else will happen? You guys will grow. We're going to start doing it this church, man. Just get ready. We're going to start praying together. And people are going to hate it. But we are going to grow. Because nothing binds us together more than prayer. Prayer does two things. Prayer tunes us into God's will. It tunes us in. We think that we're praying just so that God will do things for us. But really, mostly we're praying so that we tune into what he's doing. Do you get that? Do you get the difference? Listen, Tim Keller said this in his book on prayer, which is really good. I'd highly recommend it. He said, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. Isn't that good? That's what prayer does. It tunes us in to him. Also, prayer unites our hearts together. Man, when you pray, you want, you want to fix your marriage, start praying with your wife. I'm not trying to make oversimplifications. You want to fix your partnership with a, with a, with a, with a, a business partner or a friend or a leadership team, start praying together. It unites your heart. You bind together in prayer because you're tuned into God's plan. Okay? Not only does, 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 does prayer do two things, prayer reveals two things. And this is important. Please tune into this. Prayer reveals two things about you. Your prayer life reveals two things about you. The first thing is it, re- it reveals what you think about God. Is God really good? Does he really care? Does he really listen? If you don't pray, you probably don't believe he is. Probably don't believe he does. Probably do believe He doesn't. he doesn't care your prayer life tells you whether you believe God actually listens and answers prayers, whether he's capable and good of answering prayers. The second thing prayer teaches you is it teaches you a lot about what you think of yourself. Listen to this. Adam Ramsey, he said this at a conference that messed me up. He said, the greatest indicator of pride in our lives is often not boasting. It is the absence of prayer. Man, so true. I mean, we think, oh, I'm not bragging about myself. I'm not prideful. How much do you pray? Because if you don't pray, you know what that's saying? I got it. I got it. You having a hard day, man? I don't know, but you guys, men, I just push harder. I just work harder. I just put my nose to the grind. When I'm struggling, I just give it more. What does that say about me? It says that I don't believe that I need God. Perseverant prayer. Dependent prayer. These are things that we need to be living in. And the, 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 the lower view of ourselves that we have, the more we pray. The higher view of ourselves we have, the less we pray. And the same is true of churches, by the way. Churches that don't have need, don't pray. This is one healthy thing about church planning. You have lots of need. Is anybody going to come? Are we going to have any money? Where are we going to go? Is anyone going to help? I don't know. We better pray. You start to get established. Things start to get comfortable. You stop praying. That's the reality. Man, we want to see people come to Christ in this city, and we can't do that. I can't make people believe in Jesus. That's just really not possible. It's a supernatural thing, so we have to pray for it. It's really healthy. That's what these guys did. They prayed. This was the shape of their ministry, these four things. This was the shape of their square, okay? It, 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 was, it was doctrine, prayer, fellowship, and the gospel. Those four things. There's nothing complex about that. You're not going to sell a book to the Christian culture or the church culture, writing uh, ecclesiology, the four things a church should do. Break, communion. I mean, you're just not going to do that. My point in saying that is, stop overcomplicating everything. I mean, we think that we have to, like, be rocket scientists to see the kingdom of God grow. These guys weren't healthy because of what they were doing. They are healthy because of why they were doing it. There was an authenticity to what they were doing. There's plenty of churches that are doing all of these things. But are they doing them authentically? Are they doing them with real faith, real trust? So those are the angles. Now look at the shape, or the lines. Look at the lines. So because they did those four things, four things happened. The first one is in verse 43, and it says, awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The word awe is actually the Greek word phabos. You ready for this? It's fear. Fear. We don't translate it that way because we 've got to water it down, man we don 't like the idea of people thinking they have to be afraid of God. God is sort of just this like happy little Santa Claus guy, you know in the West. These guys were terrified, <laughs> and I actually believe it 's talking primarily about the people outside of the Christian community. They were watching what God was doing in this early church, this three thousand baby Christians. And they were terrified. Why were they terrified? Because you're in a Greek culture where at the foundation of their belief was that we control God's through sacrifices. I want a safe trip on the ocean, so I sacrifice to my Greek God, and He gives me a safe trip. Control. It's all about control. Here's a God they can't control. The God that these guys are worshiping, He's showing up and doing all these miraculous works that are confirming their doctrine. And man, they can't control them, and it's freaking them out. It's freaking them out. They had a sense of awe. A healthy fear of God. Let me suggest to you that fearing God is the closest to reality you'll ever be. No, I'm not talking about as Christians, we don't have terror of God. We're saved. He's our Father. But at the same time, He is the most powerful person in the universe. And having a healthy fear of that person is, just means you're in touch with reality. I mean, I love it when people, I don't love it, it's ridiculous when people say, oh, you know, I'm not really afraid of God. I'll have a talk with Him when I get up there. Are you kidding me? You're delusional. You're out of touch with reality. God is to be feared. It leads us to the truth. I mean, we just think about Jesus like he's just this, this sort of app that we can leave on our phone and pull him out when we want to. And all of a sudden, God is working in such a manifest and miraculous way that no one's able to do that, and they're terrified. They're freaked out, okay? The second thing uh, that happens is they have radical generosity. Look at verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common... And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? What's crazy about that, let me tell you this, what's crazy about that is no one told them to. And the old covenant, you had to give. And when you you add up all of the the, the things you were supposed to give in the old covenant, it was like 20-something percent, man. I mean, that was crazy. And here comes the new covenant. No one's told them to give anything, and just naturally out of this new desires of their heart, they're giving, literally selling their stuff and giving it to people that need it. Now, this isn't communism. No one's telling them to do this. They're not selling it just to sell it, to put it into a pool. They're selling their stuff for particular needs. You notice that? Someone doesn't have a home, man, they sell their stuff and they help them get a home. It's, it's, it's relational generosity. It's not just a, a, a random generosity. It's like, man, we see a need. We want to fill that need. I love that. 3,000 people. You realize that that 3,000 baby Christians, most of them weren't from Jerusalem? They were just there visiting. They were just there visiting for Pentecost. They didn't have anywhere to go home to. And the only church in the world at that point is in Jerusalem. So they stuck around. You got all these people that don't have homes. They're sleeping on people's couches. And then all of these people that are from Jerusalem that are selling their goods to help them have what they need. That's incredible. It's beautiful. It's radical generosity. The third thing is joy and contentment in worship. Look at verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. That may be the most miraculous thing out of all of this. These guys are just content. They're just content. It's one of the most amazing fruits of the Spirit. God, I don't need anything. Just you. I'm just content. They ate their food with gladness. The word generous, there. really could be translated to simplicity or sincerity. They just ate their food with simplicity and sincerity. And having favor, verse verse 47, having favor with all men, I'd like to say that that lasted, but that favor didn't. It wasn't many years before they started um, getting beat up pretty well. And the fourth thing that happened was conversion. Look at the last, verse 47. In favor with all men, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now this is important. I know the rain is like luring, luring us to sleep right now, but, but just come back to me here, okay? The, the, the most important thing I want you to see is right here in this verse. People were coming to Christ. Why? wasn't because of their evangelistic strategy. It wasn't because they had watched Way of the Master or because they had some kind of rehearsed speech that they went out and told everybody or because they had practiced. They, people were coming to Christ because these guys were so authentic in their relationship as a body that the world was drawn to that. People keep asking me, saying, what's your evangelistic strategy? How are you going to reach people in Grants Pass? We're going to be the church that the lost people need to see so we can give them the gospel they need to hear. Do you understand that the way we love each other as Christians is their single greatest tool in evangelism? Do you understand that there are hundreds of thousands of lost, hurting, broken people out there that look at the community that we should have within the church and they long for it in the deepest parts of their heart? They don't find it at the gym. They don't find it at the bar. They don't find it at their work. Workplaces are just gossip-filled. Gyms are just places to hook up. They should see the community that we have, the way we love each other, the way we care for each other, the way that we're willing to step into each other's garbage and bear each other's burdens, and it should speak volumes of the gospel. They should see Christ through the way that we love each other. That's why Jesus said so clearly in John 13, 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, the way that you guys love each other is your your greatest evangelical strategy that doesn't mean that we don't need to go tell people. doesn't mean we need to be strategic in the way we talk to the lost. But may the lost see the way we love each other and see it as radical and want to be part of it. They just want to be part of that family. And what makes that family is that we are connected to Christ. We are baptized into his life and his death and resurrection. Amen? This church, man, they did everything. They did it all. They had good doctrine. They had, good, they, they had a good prayer life. They were social justice focused. They did evangelism. They had lots of events and fellowship things. And um, they had favor in their community. They had big gatherings and small group ministry. They were the whole meal deal. Why were they the whole meal deal? Because they were just responding to the gospel. You know, I mean, we just put so much thought. We, it's, I'll tell you what. I will lose my mind. As a pastor, trying to keep up with all the things that I know we're supposed to be doing as a church. Oh man, where are we evangelizing? Do we have a good youth group? Like, are we doing a communion? Are we doing this? Are we praying? Are we praying? Are we, you know, do we have a, this ministry and that ministry and this ministry and that ministry? If we are smitten by the gospel, we will do all these things. The gospel, if it's believed, will bring and demand a holistic ministry to this city. If we don't care about the ports because we're not believing the gospel, if we're not preaching the loss, is because we're not believing the gospel. If we're not loving each other, it's because we're not believing the gospel. If we're not going to the table, if we're not praying together, if we're not worshiping God, if we're not content in what God has given us, it's because we're not believing the gospel. If we believe the gospel, we will have a holistic ministry that will be powerful. And it has nothing to do with the method. It has everything to do with the message we believe. Does that make sense? I love the simplicity of this. It's such good news for me. I just want to note four things and then we're going to get into groups. And I'm going to go really quick because we're running out of time. Number one, it's angles over lines. Don't read this and be like, man, we've got to evangelize. Man, we got to do this. Man, we got to do this. All of that stuff happened because they were just praying together, being together, learning the word together, reminding each other of the gospel together. Okay? It was angles first and then the lines came. This one's important. Secondly, authenticity over complexity. I've already said this a million times. Authenticity over complexity. And thirdly, response over resolve. It wasn't that these guys were just so resolved to be the church they needed to be. They were just responding. Amen?